But I'll tell you honestly what I think the most important problem is and where I want to play at least some role. And that is that the average American to a significant degree is giving up on government. The measure the values that a country has by how it treats its mamas and its babies. And the United States for 25 years has profoundly failed on this front. We have failed our mamas, we have failed our babies. Welcome to Policy Please, where we cover politics from the progressive left. I'm Steve Furdeck. And I'm Paul Nelson. Pleased to be joining you, Steve. Yeah, you too, man. How's your day been going? Oh, it's been going good so far. Joining the good day. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, same here, same here. Well, today on Policy Please, we're going to be covering the 2020 presidential Democratic race. We're looking at tons of candidates in the field, but it's pretty much been narrowed down over the last, I'd say about a month. You think so? Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. I, we've been seeing a ton of trends. The The wider field has definitely slimmed down a bit, that's for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you got tons of candidates where it's just not realistic at this point, And we, we've seen some pretty pretty clear front runners. But first, we definitely wanted to cover our personal positions and our bias for our, our listeners. We definitely come from the progressive left and we're going to be covering from that side. You know, we, we definitely have some biases. I don't know if you wanted to go over any of your bias that you would have covering any of this. Sure. So my current political stance is one of a democratic socialist. I align with politicians like Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, and the like. I would consider myself progressive as a more generic label. Largely, this kind of stems from my upbringing, my background, largely being from a small town in rural America, growing up on a small farm, having gone to public school, experienced the benefits of socialized education. I was on free and reduced lunches as a kid, so experienced the benefit of those kind of programs. And they've largely contributed to shaping my political ideology. Yeah, yeah. And we, we share a, a pretty similar story of, you know, and, and our bias. You know, I come from a family that was on many of government assistant programs. I, I saw as I got older, you know, how much those programs assisted my family, you know, where my parents themselves came from, how they overcame their, you know, their hardships and where they're at today. You know, those government programs definitely... I don't think I'd be where I am today without those programs. Same, you know, my, my grandma being very political, we share a lot of common ideology. You know, I see myself now as the same person that she is, you know, driving in my car, listening to the talk radio. So she definitely helped form a lot of my political beliefs. My stance, similar to Paul, democratic socialist, you know, I support Bernie Sanders seems to be the, the clear candidate in my mind, but We'll definitely go over the other candidates and why we we feel the way we do about them. Kind of go over some of the candidates that are in the race. We're looking at current frontrunner Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Andrew Yang, Amy Klobuchar. These have kind of been the the top six in the area. Who do you think would be a surprise candidate that you think would surge in the next month or two you know beyond your your one and two biden sanders uh, you see warren or or even mayor pete or yang getting any kind of surge leading up to iowa i can see that coming from michael bloomberg especially oh yes he's already experienced a bit of a surge coming from october into december now largely where he's kind of entered the race and already become a 
a big name. He's surpassed the likes of Tulsi Gabbard, Tom Steyer, Cory Booker. He's pulling higher than they are. And he definitely has the funds to endure a long campaign. Yeah, and I think the most scary thing about Bloomberg wouldn't be him really doing damage within the caucuses or the primaries. It would be, you know, a massive threat if he decided to run as an independent, you know, down the road at the general election. Certainly. And from what I understand, he and his team have largely been targeting some of the states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, where where Trump was able to carry away a victory in 2016. And so he may even just be looking to destabilize a potential progressive run from the likes of Bernie or Elizabeth Warren. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it wouldn't be a danger in those primaries and caucuses because realistically, he's going to be pulling votes from those Democratic voters that weren't going to be voting for Bernie. They weren't going to be voting for, you know, even even Warren or Yang. And he's going to be pulling votes from, you know, Biden, from Buttigieg, from, you know, Klobuchar, these more centrist or corporate Democrats. I think Pete has really been struggling, you know, especially with the last debates that went on. We saw a lot of the candidates attacking him for his, you know, campaign finances, you know, what, where he's getting his money, where his donations are coming from. I think he's going to struggle a bit more than what some of the polls have been suggesting. Yeah, I, I know the specific exchange you're talking about where he, he and, and Warren, you know, go into a bit of an argument about wine cave yeah. and other things wherein they're accepting all sorts of money from, from, from big money donors here. And it was an interesting clip. I think it'd be worth uh, worth taking a look at here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll go ahead and play that. Wait, Senator Warren, 45 seconds to respond. So the mayor just recently had a fundraiser that was held in a wine cave full of crystals and served $900 a bottle wine. Um, think about who comes to that. He had promised that every fundraiser he would do would be open door, but this one was closed door. We made the decision many years ago that rich people in smoke-filled rooms would not pick the next president of the United States. Billionaires in wine caves should not pick the next president of the United States. Mr. Mayor, your okay. response. You know, according to Forbes magazine, I am the, literally the only person on this stage who's not a millionaire or a billionaire. So if, this is important. This is the problem with issuing purity tests you cannot yourself pass. If I pledge, if I pledge never to be in the company of a progressive Democratic donor, I couldn't be up here. Senator, your net worth is 100 times mine. Now, supposing that you went home feeling the holiday spirit, I know this isn't likely, but stay with me, and decided to go on to peteforamerica.com and give the maximum allowable by law, $2,800. Would that pollute my campaign because it came from a wealthy person? No, I would be glad to have that support. We need the support from everybody who is committed to helping us defeat Donald Trump. Yeah, that's, and that's, you know, Warren going after, after Buttigieg, Klobuchar did as well. I think Sanders made a jab at Buttigieg in that, in that same one upon the campaign donors. What is it? He made the joke of, you know, Joe leading the race and with 44 billionaire contributors while Pete is hosting 39 billionaire contributors. So they're all, they're all kind of shooting for him in that respect. 
As they should, honestly. Yeah. I mean, in talking about a, you know, issuing a purity test that you yourself cannot pass, there should be a purity test of, of that measure for Democratic candidates. It's 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 not necessarily going to be very popular for Democratic voters. Sure. If you do have plenty of billionaires backing your campaign, what have we seen from that kind of politics for the past, you know, decade or two, honestly? Oh, um, yeah. Establishment Democrats doing favors for companies like Verizon, among other, you know, giant corporations that benefit the very political campaigns that they donate to and support. And so it is worth calling them into question when they have these, you know, closed doors or open door donor meetings with these big money donors. I mean, it's not like they're making these contributions with without expecting anything in return. No, and and absolutely, absolutely. And the big thing that they're they're also going after him for is is transparency. He's not showing all of his his donors. Like you know, Bernie has no issue. I mean, he's got one point three million contributors to his campaign. You know, largest in political history. But also to go back to that clip, to be fair for Pete, he's calling her out on money that she received when she was running as a senator. She did take corporate money. She did, you know, allocate leftover money from that campaign into her political campaign. And that's what he he's kind of calling her out to on as well. She has during her, you know, political campaign said she's not taking any PAC money, any corporate money. But we do know that I think it's is it Raytheon, you know, the questionable donor to her last campaign as a senator. Yeah, no, I mean, at the end of the at the end of the day, in that portion of the debate, they just both ended up dragging themselves into the mud. Both got up dirty, honestly. Yes. And so not a, not a good look for either of them, honestly. And if anything, you know, it's, it's going to be a good thing for Bernie at the end of the day when he can when he can brag about being funded entirely by, you know, small donors. Yeah. Massive grassroots movement. And oh, yeah. th- that's that's what these other candidates lack. Uh, they know that they're not going to have the support like Bernie has from your average your average voter you know i think his average contribution to his campaign is what 18 dollars now 17 dollars yeah it's about 18 bucks 18 or so none of them could run a campaign like that they 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 need that kind of money and and, it, and it's kind of shown for warren you know at the end of this debate i don't think you know when they were talking about winners and who stood out i i, I didn't really hear pete or elizabeth's name in that list but another big thing to talk about there is Pete's talking about purity tests, you know, she, that they want to hold them to a different standard. And, you know, he, he wants to talk about how money doesn't affect politics, but we do have a clip from Pete running in 2010, uh, in Indiana, he's running for state treasurer and he's, he, he wants to talk about the money that he was going to be receiving there. So I'm going to go ahead and roll that clip. So anything you had in mind? I think uh, today is the day when uh, campaigns uh, release their finance numbers and uh, everybody puts their cards on the table for the last quarter. And it's highlighted something I think is uh, really important in, uh, in this uh, race and is very important certainly to my campaign. And that is that I think we need to get uh, special interest money out of the treasurer's race. Right now, uh, there are almost no rules uh, constraining the ability of, say, Wall Street banks to pump large sums of money into state treasurer's uh, campaign. And having looked at uh, uh, my own uh, finances and, and seen what's happening in my opponent's race, uh, I've noticed that thousands of dollars are flowing in from some of the biggest banks in the country in order to defeat me. Uh, it's not just that they're trying to defeat me that, that I'm bothered by this, but um, at very early on in this campaign, I made a decision that I wasn't going to accept 
any money from a bank that could be doing business with the state treasurer's office. Uh, I think it creates a, a conflict of interest. It creates an appearance, at the very least, that, that can smell like pay-to-play. Uh, it's not good for the state. And I don't think it's good for the banks either. Who wants to be the one bank that didn't contribute if four or five banks are competing to get uh, a favorable decision from the state treasurer's office? And so early on in this campaign, I announced that I wouldn't take that money, uh, no corporate money from banks, no PAC money from banks. And uh, somebody who works at a bank, we're going to hold ourselves to a limit that's lower than the official limit. He did go on to lose that race, but I do feel he did do the right thing. He had the the right idea. And I think he knows still that that is the right idea. But I also think he's trying to, trying to run a, a presidential campaign, but very different from a, from a treasury run in Indiana to running for president of the United States. But either way, if, if this is your stance on it, I, I want to see you stay consistent on that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just a sign that it's not a value he actually holds if he's not going to, again, remain, like you're saying, remain consistent with it. I mean, he's now raised probably north of $30 million in his bid for the White House, a lot of which is coming from Wall Street, bankers specifically. It is just strange to see him do a complete 180 on that, though. It's telling of the kind of policies that they have. When you look at the policy differences between those big money candidates like Biden, Buttigieg, you look at, you know, even... Sanders or Warren, it speaks volumes as to what industries they're protecting by Mm -hmm. steering clear of any sort of real progressive policies like Medicare for all, for example, which from what I understand now, Bernie is one of the only candidates pushing for a a complete Medicare for all as opposed to some single payer option, you know, or opt in Mm -hmm. plan. It is just telling as to, you know, who's keeping your lights on and then who are you going to pay back at the end of the day when it comes time to enact policy? Exactly. And in an early in Pete's campaign, he, he advocated for Medicare for all. I don't think it was till after he received a lot of this money from, you know, the, the big surge that he's gotten, you know, all the the donor parties that he's held. And I think he met with Mark Zuckerberg. But you, you could see that his stances have changed. He, at first, it was Medicare for all. Now it's Medicare for all who wants them, which I, I think is a disaster. And we know what happens with, with that kind of system. People with money stay on their insurance. People who are sick or you know poor people go on to the Medicare option. It's a scenario where we need everybody on board. To, to truly afford it, everybody, it's all or none. Um, no, that's, that sounds pretty on par with what I've heard as well. Yeah. I think a the single-payer option leaves it kind of weak as opposed to it being a Medicare for all plan, being uh, comprehensive and covering everyone and and we can we could circle back to warren as well over talking as candidates that have talked about medicare for all initially um and now we're kind of settling for another i don't know if that's a strategy from warren to center herself a bit more but her choice is basically a medicare for all who won it a public option initially and then within the same term she wants to fight in her third year to open it up to everybody. So it's kind of a get a taste of it. I I really don't think this will work. I think that initial fight is going to be a battle as well as coming back to it again within your same term to fight that same battle. I think it'd be very hard, especially if, if Republicans keep the Senate, even if Democrats take the Senate, I think it's still going to be very hard to push, to push some of these things through. 
you know, Iowa's coming up February 3rd. Got about a little over a month on that. I think that is going to set the pace for the few next states after that. Biden still currently leading in Iowa. Bernie in a close second. Mayor Pete surged earlier last last month, um, but it has fallen off. Fallen off. Still above Warren, though. That's going to be a a big one, as Iowa always is. Kind of see what the middle of the country is looking at, what they're voting for. But New Hampshire follows that. Sanders is pretty heavily in the lead there. Pete's actually second in that race over Biden, surprisingly, with Warren still at fourth. Then where it kind of gets gray is Nevada and, and South South Carolina. I think what happens in those first two those two states is going to help push Nevada. I think if somebody starts building a roll going, um, they can they can pretty much take over Nevada. Carolina though is 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 very important. You know that's it's where you get your first actual African American vote. Not not to say that there's not those votes in other states, but a large community of those people. Um, let's see who they who they're who they're going to support. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where the race goes from here, especially in North Carolina, Nevada. From what I understand, Joe Biden's leading the Democratic field in Nevada at the moment. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, coming back to a little bit on South Carolina with with that first large African American vote, historically Biden's done really well with them. But I think there's a, a pretty good argument to be made for Sanders. I think he could get just as much support if the word was out there. And you, you see that with, with people like Killer Mike out there advocating, even even Cardi B. No, he definitely has a lot of allies he's trying to build in this movement. And so a lot of big endorsements. Oh, yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I got an email today from Danny DeVito asking me for contributions for uh, for Bernie Sanders. You know, it's. But uh, I, I think I think Killer Mike's a big one. He's been an advocate for him since the 2016 campaign. You know, Killer Mike was out there talking about Bernie like crazy. They've had some some interviews. He did the barbershop interview with Killer Mike, which I thought was phenomenal. But I do have a clip from Killer Mike talking about support that Bernie should be getting from the African American community. You know, it's being a white man. It's hard for me to tell people who they should be voting for from other ethnicities. But I think Killer Mike's, he's a good guy to, to listen to on that. I'm going to go ahead and play a clip for him. When you have an opportunity to tell two black girls to shut up and get off stage and you don't, and you shake their hand and you smile and you step to the side and you listen, that is a firm difference from turning around and staring at a little black girl and saying, shut up, I'll talk to you later. You're being rude or allowing people to say that to her. I'm going to tell you the proof is in the pudding every time. If I can find a picture of you from 51 years ago, chained to a black woman, protesting segregation, and I know 51 years later, you're willing to fold your arms, hold your head, and listen to two black girls yell and scream, rightfully so, as opposed to someone who will tell you to shut up after they've read their own words. As opposed to someone who will tell you later when it comes to your children dying in the streets I know I know that the only person that I have the conscience to vote for is Bernard Sanders I know that the only person that my logical beautiful black mind will allow me to vote for is Senator Bernie Sanders 
And I want to tell the other side, I know from going around and shaking hands and hugging these beautiful black faces in South Carolina, that goddamn firewall got a crack in it. Um, okay, back to the issue. So the end of that clip is a clip of Hillary Clinton being interrupted by a black woman. And she basically just dismisses her. They get her out. And earlier, what Mike is talking about was two angry African-American women angry at a Bernie rally. He didn't have them removed. He paused. He heard what they had to say, and he listened to them. And I think that's a, a pretty big I difference. May have even, I think he may have even given them the platform, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it's a it shows a remarkable difference in the types of campaigning that you know Hillary did to the black community as opposed to what Bernie has tried to do in, in fostering a, a coalition across different races as opposed to trying to pander to somebody. Yeah. Like I remember Hillary was on a like a black talk show wherein she described how she carried hot sauce around in her pockets as some sort of like odd attempt to try and play to black voters i guess i remember that really coming off to many many people as being inauthentic what is what is pandering and what is actually talking to an audience of people and actually captivating an audience of people not just you know the oh well i voted for obama kind of thing i would have voted for him for a third term like yeah it's it's a pretty night and day difference between those those candidates and it extends out beyond the african-american community you know bernie it's out there fighting for all of them everybody Latinos, yeah, Ilan Omar, you know, the Muslim community, he, he's a fighter for all of us, not just your white average voter. One more thing that I'd add there is I remember seeing a video the other day where he was speaking specifically to a group of white working class Americans, and he was talking about, in part, some of the struggles they face, not to highlight it as being greater in any way. A lot of people talk about how that kind of struggle led to a growth in support for Donald Trump during 2016. Yeah. And so the fact that he's able to kind of juggle these problems, listen to both communities and and try and come up with a solution that works for everybody, as opposed to one that will uh, benefit any individual group shows that it is indeed a movement for us. One thing I would want to bring up in regards to uh, listening to people of color, at least in the records that a lot of these candidates have was when Joe Biden specifically headed the judiciary committee during anita hill's testimony yeah it's strange watching those hearings and watching the kavanaugh hearings live the hurdles they put up the the fast tracking a little bit of both almost i remember one of the barriers that dr ford had in explaining her experience was being believed you know and i remember that that was very similar to what had happened with Anita Hill when she was accusing Clarence Thomas of allegedly making these horribly horrible offhand remarks to her. Mm-hmm. And I remember the clip specifically when she recounts her experience to Joe Biden. What does he do? Does he lend her any credibility? Does he believe her? Or does he call into question the veracity of her claims? He asked what he specifically said. He wanted quotes from her. Rather than, you know, talking about the situation, you know, how, what happened versus, well, what did he say? Yeah, specifically, I think he described that she was making a characterization of the conversation. But what he had asked her to repeat after she had made that characterization, he said, repeat his words in his words, not yours. Yes. But in his words. 
seems facetious to me. I mean, it isn't. I mean, how do you speak for someone else? Yeah, yeah. And you, you asking somebody to quote somebody from, you know, who knows how long ago? Now he's sitting on the Supreme Court. You know, Clarence Thomas. He's been a judge for a long time. Now, to Joe Biden's credit, he did come out with a statement saying that his actions in regards to Anita Hill were wrong. Mm-hmm. Though it's curious to me that he can do all that and at the same time not call for any sort of impeachment of Clarence Thomas or any sort of actions in regards to dealing with that problem. Yeah. I mean, he he recognizes that it was a problem, but this says, oh, it's too late now. You know, it's just really not reflective of, of any sort of true apology. And from what I understand, Anita Hill, when she was called by Joe Biden in an attempt to gain some sort of apology or understanding about the situation, she's known for having declined his apology specifically. Sure. She probably saw through it. Yeah. Yeah. Too little too too late or she kind of saw through it as as what it is. If we're not going to hold people accountable and just trying to help the guys that are that are in as as a lot of those establishments do. It's tolerating a culture that's supportive of that kind of abuse of power. No, yeah, absolutely. Just enabling it. I mean, one one good thing to take out of it all, though, is I remember after the whole Anita Hill, you know, testimony, after the fact, there was a, a surge in participation in the, in the democratic process by women. And I think that was the year of the woman, but they had a bunch of women elected to Congress as a result. And I think there was a similar push after the Kavanaugh hearings as well. Oh, yeah. There's something to be said for exciting the voter turnout, specifically ones more supportive of equality and creating an environment that'll work for everybody, not just the boys, right? Or the boys club. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I I think that's, it'd be a good time to kind of pivot here to why we support progressive candidates. And because this is going to kind of cover these things, why, why we support the candidates we do, you know, they're there to support people of color they're there to you know snuff up money in politics big ones like climate change and i guess especially climate change i think the green new deal is massively important to pass the world scientists are in agreement when we talk about climate change being one of the number one threats to life on this planet you know we are in the midst of a major extinction event caused by us, caused by our propagation of pollution and and greenhouse gases. We're causing the temperature of the world to rise by already 1.5 degrees Celsius. We talk about estimates that get us into three degrees above the average temperature. And at that point, we're unable to grow rice, corn, you know, any sort of grain. And so pretty easy to see the kind of threat that that poses to the world itself. You know, that would be Oof. Yeah, I mean, imagine temperatures near the equator. You know, they'd be un, uh, nearly unlivable. You'd have mass migration of people, your coastal flooding from the ice caps melting. We'll have, you know, it's it's going to be a, a massive issue. And, you know, we're not going to be the only ones that have to participate, but we can be the ones that are leading it. I think other countries will look to us. I think we'll have a good chance to build the infrastructure first. Yeah, I mean, uh, the government has to play a role here. You know, it was the lack of regulation that, you know, brought us to this point. Um, You know, I mean, you could have argued for a time that it was a lack of our understanding of the problem. But, you know, evidence shows that even fossil fuel companies were aware of the kind of destructive effects that heightened carbon emissions would lead to. Yet they continued on with their practices, if not expanding them. And so those problems are getting worse and worse on our current track. 
we're looking at fishless oceans by 2040 is my understanding. Mm. Really, any one of these disastrous environmental consequences that can come as a result of climate change that people have been talking about, even one of them would present massive economic, social, and just very real threats to, to America. You know, in the Green New Deal, I liked how they highlighted specifically how much it was going to cost Americans when it came to not taking action on climate change, the billions, if not trillions of dollars that would essentially be lost through damage to industry. It really speaks to how necessary these changes are. Yeah, I got the number right here. It's 500 trillion and lost annual economic output in the United States by 2100. It's a lot of money. You know, it's that's over the next 80 years, but you know, $500 trillion is, that's the kind of loss we would take. Rather than start here from the ground up, build the infrastructure, build the technology, be the leaders in the world, then we can base our economy around that. You know, we, we can move away from the fossil fuel centered, you know, economy. We could be selling out to these other countries, you know, our technologies, you know, build a, a clean economy. Yeah, one one that doesn't necessarily rely on um, unending consumption and unhindered growth. You know, yes. like it, you know, we go on with these kind of businesses and industries with the idea that this is going to be how it is for a long time. When in fact, the unsustainable nature of these industries and our reliance on them as a country lends that same instability to the whole system. You know, yes. and so as soon as they all fail, you know, we, we fail as well. And so it is in our best interest that we do shift our, our technologies and our economy and our, just our infrastructure over to a more green one. And imagine the economic boost, the jobs created from taking on such a great undertaking, you know, nothing in the world has ever been done like that. Um, at least not to that scale, not in the richest country in the world, but imagine with our resources, what we can do if we decide to take action on this. Yeah. You know? And the jobs that would be created, you know, this is, it is a, a green new deal. It goes back to FDR's new deal. You know, the public works, get people jobs, subsidizing for, for the average person, giving grants out uh, to smaller businesses. The economic boom that we would, that we would obtain from this would, would be pretty large. You know, we, it would shrink unemployment. You're, you're, you're fighting for a good cause. We're talking about a federal jobs guarantee, if I understand it correctly. And so yeah. that's shrinking unemployment. Then we're also covering things like transportation under this. It's crazy to me that we don't have any high-speed rails. You know, we have the light rails in a lot of cities, but I'm talking cross-country high-speed rails that a lot of other countries have. Most other developed countries have these. This would cut down tons on carbon emissions, you can cut down on, on, on air travel, cut down on cars being driven. I think that's a, a huge, huge improvement for our country. And then, you know, it kind of ties in into in the industry aspect of the of the New Deal of, you know, we're gonna start a whole new whole new workforce of people, at least pivoting a lot of people off of those, you know, coal mining jobs and, and oil jobs into, you know, greener sectors. No, that'd be uh that'd be phenomenal. I was just going to say important in that kind of employment transition for a lot of folks who are going from like working in oil fields, working, working in coal. A big part of that I see with, with the Green New Deal is advancing our economy and the, you know, the education level of our workforce. If we are to be able to provide, you know, a public college option or a public technical school option for those types of people, then they have the ability to further their careers 
I mean, not to say that there's anything wrong with working in a coal mine, you know, the work itself. Yeah. Um, but what you're working towards, you know, probably something more fulfilling, something less less medically dangerous, and certainly something less environmentally hazardous. And so that's another reason why I think, you know, in part, we, we talk about the threat the Green New Deal poses to these kinds of jobs and employment levels. And then we talk about the second half being pushing for a public college option and a public technical school option so that we're able to more readily transition these people from their current jobs into newer ones. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's another progressive progressive policy that we love to see is is public funded schools. There's no reason to have your elementary schools and your high schools publicly funded, but then, oh, on college, it's on you, but you need it. That's a big one, as well as, as the healthcare. You know, we talk about Medicare for all. It, this kind of all encompasses, you know, all of these things help each other out. You have a more educated country. You have a healthier country. You have a country that's working more. As a whole, you're, you're going to improve. And that we experienced that in the you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, the golden era of, of our country. But we pretty much sold all that off. So these things could also go hand in hand with, you know, banning private prisons, um, legalizing marijuana, things like that. Nonviolent criminals sitting in sitting in prison for, for years, either one helping line someone's pockets in a private prison or two using our our tax dollars in, in state prisons. You know, all, all of these things are, are pushing for a, a greater ideal, not just each and every single one of them. You know, what kind of free stuff can I get? You know, the, the, the classic liberal argument. It's it's an ideal as a whole. You know, we do this and this and this and this clears a lot of problems instead of, well, let's, let's just focus on this issue and we'll tackle this issue and we'll focus on this. It's And, and Bernie says it. He, he wants to do multiple things at the same time. It's not a we'll take yeah. a thing step by step. It's these things need to happen for that ideal future. No, yeah, Bernie can definitely, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. Yes. One of the things that I, you know, like to talk about is the idea of Medicare for all and, you know, public colleges. We're talking about ideas that work in practice and we already have them we have k through 12 public schools Mm -hmm. that work in practice that work phenomenally in practice and benefit our society in great and measurable ways to expand that to k through 16 isn't a as crazy an idea as many would like us to think and it would benefit our society in many of the same ways and so we have a working system you know public public high schools public elementaries public k through 12 and it works. There is evidence to suggest, and other countries have it working, that a public college, public technical school option would work and that it would benefit our society as a whole. The same can be said for Medicare for all, like I was saying. Medicare itself works, works great. You know, seniors that are on it, I mean, I mean, I can't speak as a senior that's on it, but I will tell you as formerly being on a similar program like Medicaid, they are phenomenal programs. And for the people that are on them, they function well. It's not a question of, you know, just giving free stuff to everybody. It's expanding currently working programs to cover more people. And yeah, I, I, I hate the reductionist. Oh, the Democrats just want their free stuff. No, I just want access to functional and beneficial government programs like Medicare for all. <laughs> exactly. Enriching our country would also take a lot of burden off of a lot of the social programs we have. Less people would need more of, of these programs if we all were enriched through you know, Medicare for all, education, you know, Green New Deal, all these things are going to enrich us as a country. You'll, you'll see less people on those government programs because it won't be necessary 
down down the road if it's in an ideal sense um, if, yeah if we're able to to double union participation in the united states and we're able mm-hmm. to raise the minimum wage federally to 15 dollars an hour imagine the decreased use of food stamps and i would assume other other similar federal programs no longer are we the taxpayer subsidizing private employers like walmart you know you know other amazon companies amazon a lot of these large private employers tasty foods like you know taco bell uh, kfc etc you know we're paying the difference i remember an old bill maher quote i like to i like to think back on was if colonel sanders doesn't pay the lady behind the counter enough uncle sam has to mm-hmm. you know and so that it, the burden really does fall on these 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 social welfare nets when private employers don't pay their workers enough to make ends meet. And it's not a question of, you know, why do we have all these people on welfare? It's a question of why do they why do they need it? Yeah. And it's it's because they're not being paid enough or not being paid with their worth. And so that's why, you know, the organizer in chief element of, of the Sanders candidacy is is something I'm a really big fan of because it would give workers a say in, in a sort of workplace democracy, being able to cut down on on at-will employment yes. contracts. I, I heard him talking something along the lines of establishing a just cause law that would require employers to fire you for just cause, not necessarily for reasons that would benefit them. Yeah. And that would greatly benefit the working people of this country. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And when people talk about social Democrats, we don't mean full socialist you don't mean full communism we just mean an enhanced version of what we already have we already run socialist programs in this country you know social security was signed 85 years ago that's a standing very supported program that we have in this country we have you know fire departments police departments you know your schools the roads you drive on these are social programs we just want an expansion of that and them it done better you know, uh, including everybody. You don't pay for the fire department to come to your house. They they come. Exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. It's not what can I afford if my while my house is burning down. Why is it the same for a lot of these other things like like healthcare, like a medical emergency? Yeah. Exactly. We just want to see an expansion of that. And if you know people here think that we truly are the greatest country on earth then we should be able to rise to those challenges and do them exceptionally well. Yeah, no, I, I believe we do have like a kind of historical legacy to live up to in, in that kind of terms is, is facing a great enemy like like climate change or like uh, like labor injustices, racial injustices, environmental injustices that all again tie into one another with all sorts of like intersectionality, you know, yeah. but they all bear mention. And the only candidate that I see talking about all of them is Bernie Sanders. I mean, the other ones, it's kind of, you know, Elizabeth Warren has a lot of the same policies she talks about, but there are some points where she falters, like not being entirely on board when it comes to banning fracking, mm-hmm. when it comes to, you know, the issue with the single payer option, as opposed to Medicare for all. It's just, you got to pick and choose, but it, it seems like when I look at Bernie on the issues, it's just check, 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 check. He's just consistent and aligned with solid democratic values it's yeah it's tough that might just be my bias coming through here but yeah no and 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 that's fair but when when you look at all those chuck marks on those boxes of bernie it's not that he's just doing it you know today almost 2020 these are bernie's views he's been doing it 
since the 60s, since the 70s, since the 80s. You know, 80s was one more in his political career, but you look at the things he stand for and he has stood for, and they have been consistent. They have been the same thing. I'll play a clip here. This is Bernie in 1993 talking about health care issues in our country. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, the health care system in America is disintegrating. 80 million Americans either have no health insurance or are only partially insured. And yet, despite that, the fact that we are the only major industrialized country on earth without universal comprehensive health care, we spend far, far more per capita than any other nation. Mr. Speaker, our system is not in need of band-aids or patchwork or such concepts as managed competition. We are in need of a new system, which is why I am delighted to be co-sponsoring with 52 other members of this House, H.R. 1200, a single-payer national health care system which finally will guarantee comprehensive health care to all Americans without out-of-pocket expense. Mr. Speaker, it is only the single-payer concept which can save us tens of billions of dollars by standing up to the waste and inefficiency in the insurance industry, the greed of the pharmaceutical companies, and the excessive income that certain groups of doctors are earning. Mr. Speaker, the American people believe that health care must be a right of all citizens and not just the privilege of the wealthy. Let us pass H.R. 1200, the single-payer, universal, comprehensive health care system. Gentlemen's time has expired. And as all of you probably know, H.R. 1200 did not pass, and we are still paying insurance companies massive amounts of money to take advantage of us. One of the larger reasons why I'm a proponent of the Medicare for All system is when you have insurance through your workplace and your employer provides your health insurance, you cannot leave immediately without, you know, if you're in the middle of like a medical, in the middle of needing to use that insurance, say you have family members or a child or something like that, you certainly can't leave and and put a break in your insurance coverage. You certainly can't strike like the workers that GM did or as previous workers have done. As, as you'll see, they'll just take your insurance coverage. And so if anything, it's a way to kneecap workers in their rights to organize, have any sort of say in the workplace by having that measure of control over them, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I see Medicare for all giving back power to the people, power from their employer, power from their insurance companies and empowering, you know, their own choice because- to my understanding that Medicare for all is the only plan that allows people to have complete freedom of choice. Pick your doctor you want to go to. You don't have to worry about networking. There's no co-pays, no premiums. You know, they said they're also going to cut down, what is it, under no more than $200 a year on prescription drugs. That's phenomenal. I mean, it sounds like striking big pharma as well, you know, in, in a way that would hold them responsible, unlike they've seen in the last couple of decades. I mean, you know, the people responsible for the, uh, the opioid crisis in this country have only recently begun to be held to, uh, held to account for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not like they're in jail or anything like that. No. They're definitely having to settle a lot of lawsuits across the country from state attorney generals suing families like Johnson and Johnson, among others yeah. for their role. Purdue Pharma. Um, yeah. I wonder, I wonder what it, uh, how bad the opioid crisis would have gotten with a system like Medicare for all in place. I wonder if it would have been able to be as swollen as it, as it was. Yeah. You wouldn't have had all these incentivized, you know, payments to doctors prescribe their, their patients, these things, you know, just to line the pockets. Uh, And it's a question of 
how much bureaucracy and extra layers of administration do you have with a private insurance, you know, multiple private insurance companies type system as opposed to uh, Medicare for all type system or something like the NHS that they have in the UK? Honestly, which from what I understand there recently is recently under fire from the, uh, the, the Tories. Yeah. Yeah. They, you know, Boris Johnson has said he is committed to not removing NHS, but also I think with, with Brexit is that they need, they need to find trade negotiations with other countries. And I've, I, I have heard that American insurance companies would be included in those groups, which would probably be a nightmare if people in the UK from, from my understanding. Never been there, not a citizen there, no very few people from there. But I fairly certain NHS is just as popular as, you know, the, the healthcare programs in Canada, which they don't dare touch. I would hope that we could build that kind of foundation here with a Medicare for all system, that it would be so overwhelmingly popular that no conservative would ever dare to, to touch that. Yeah, I mean, it could, it could build the... The kind of idea, I mean, social security still comes under fire, but they're not out in the open about it. Right. No. And so they'll talk publicly about wanting to protect social security while simultaneously working to, to cut it and curtail it and weaken it. But social security has been around long enough to at least attain that popular kind of status that you're describing. It, that you wouldn't dare openly go against it. Exactly. And, and, and actually Obama used that. He talked about Republicans wanting to remove your social security. And I think that massively helped him with the older vote. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And then, I mean, they should keep talking about that. I mean, debate to debate to debate, you know, healthcare is the, the most, if not one of the most searched topics, most talked about topics. And it is pretty big on everyone's mind, healthcare and how it relates to them. Yeah. Well, it affects all of us. And that's people want to talk about, well, I don't care about politics. It doesn't affect me, but it, it really does. You know, a vote like Medicare for all affects you directly. Votes like things covering Social Security affect you directly. Maybe not right now, but down the road it will. And I, I definitely wish people would pay a bit more attention in politics. I had somebody at work the other day ask me, is Bernie Sanders running again? And it kind of blew my mind. Pretty pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, no, that's like I head under the sand there. You know, another important i guess progressive platform that i think bears bears worth mentioning campaigning on racial justice reform so yeah. addressing the you know the physical political legal economic I and mean, environmental violences you know plaguing people of color in this country uh both like systemically culturally just on you know all levels of our society you know some african americans are describing what we're going through now is like as like a new jim crow with police violence against African-American youths and everything else is kind of, honestly, hate crimes are on, on a significant uptick. Oh yeah. Emboldened. It's, yeah, honestly. And the, you know, anybody that either talks to you or thinks that America's history of racism is in its past is, is very much wrong. Yes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and that, you know, I think, a big one, and I think I could I I could see a lot of single issue voters going to the polls for this. I know some personally legalizing marijuana federally. Coming from a person that lived in Indiana for twenty seven years, it seemed far away. But now that I've lived in in Colorado for the last two years, it's kind of like, yeah, this isn't a big deal. This is good for local economies. This will be good for our federal economy. Collecting taxes on it ties right into racial injustice as well. 
I mean, the, the number of the incarceration rate of African-American people to white people over drug-related crimes is pretty astronomical. Yeah, it needs to be federally legalized. All of those nonviolent drug-related crimes needs to be expunged from that. It doesn't need to go to, you know, big corporate companies. It needs to go to small companies, help local local economies out, give it back to the people that that have been despaired the most. Certainly. I mean, when we talk about the negative effects of the prohibition of marijuana, and and I would argue the prohibition of all drugs, but we'll stick with marijuana for now. It's led to a, you know, us having more incarcerated people than just about any other country on the planet. And, you know, with that, you know, nearly 80% of the people in federal prison and 60% of the people in state prisons for drug offenses are black or Latino. And so we're talking about, you know, let's look back at the roots of this, this drug war and why specifically marijuana was illegalized and, you know, and why there's been such great interest in this drug war. And it's been to suppress communities of color. It is a very racist drug war. Yes. Um, I, I don't know any better way of saying it. Yeah. Absolutely. If anything, the illegalization of these drugs has led to further instability to our southern neighbors, like, you know, Mexico, Central, you know, the Central Americas, South America, you know, not to say that we haven't had any further reasons to destabilize those countries, certainly being one of the largest consumers of cocaine mm -hmm. and other drugs in this country, we, we supply a great demand for the drug cartels that are moving those kinds of substances into this country. And so with the legalization of marijuana comes a great many good things, one of which would be releasing these nonviolent offenders, these drug-related offenders. Imagine how much money we could save, you know, oh, with yeah. that many fewer prisoners behind bars. Yeah, and actually, you know, being put back into the economy, you know, working again, all these things are great. It, it also add on to say a little, a little more stabilization on the border, less cartel activity, less danger at the border. You know, we can we don't have to call it a crisis as it's been it's been labeled. I think you'd, you'd see a, a, a more stable border policy with the legalization of quite a few drugs. You know, you, you cut them out, you cut their supply. They no longer need to bring drugs into our country. Certainly. Yeah, no, I, I know um, it's at least damaged the illegal the illegal weed industry here in Colorado is certainly. Um, it's been significantly weakened through the regulation and legalization, decriminalization of marijuana. Oh, so yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't know if I've ever met anybody here that sells weed. <laughs> it, it's funny, you know, come from Indiana, you pay outrageous prices because it's it's illegal and you're the only person that like, we can buy it from. And then you come here and it's a fraction of the price legalized at the store. You know, you're not. And you're not associating with, you know, the type of people that are selling vast quantities of drugs. You know, yeah. you, you can, you know, as opposed to having to meet up with somebody with a gun, you know, it's, it's uh, like seeing drugs and working with larger organized crime uh, groups. Yeah. You know, you can you can go to a legal business that can pay taxes, you know, not to mention the idea that you know what you're getting too. Exactly. And so, you know, you, you hear stories about, you know, lace marijuana with like PCP, cocaine, and all these other types of substances, fentanyl at the worst, yeah. to try and, you know, get these people hooked on harder drugs. And there's an incentive for illegal drug dealers to do something like that. Now, if you can entirely provide a much easier, uh, you know, less dangerous option, people are going to go for it, you know, and the syntaxes are going to benefit us all. Oh, at the end of the day. absolutely. 
and you know, it's it's no different, you know, for for those of you not living in legalized countries, it's no different than going to the liquor store. You know, a little more security, got to show your ID, but it, it's not a big deal. It's you know, you go in there and it's people of all ages, guys, girls, people in their twenties, people in their sixties. Uh, it's not a it's not a weird thing, and safer environments. You know, you're not like like you said, you're not showing up to some dude's house at two in the morning, not knowing what's gonna what's gonna happen whether the cops are going to show up or if something bad's going to happen with that interaction, um, you go to the store, normal business hours. Yeah. In- instead of furthering a multi-billion dollar industry, you know, illegal drug manufacturing, transportation, and we can create a legal industry that can employ people gainfully here, you know, local, local jobs mm-hmm. that can then be taxed. And so the, the benefits there are nearly unending. Okay. And the idea that people are going to increase their use of marijuana, I mean, there may have been a slight uptick, but I can only imagine that's coming from the accessibility of it. Um, yeah. People are going to be using these drugs either way. And so are making, them, are making them illegal only serves to benefit these illegal enterprises and organizations that are moving the drugs. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm big on the, the legalization of marijuana at the very least, though I could see a uh, sound argument for the legalization or regulation of most, most of those illegal drugs. If not decriminalization, you know, here in Colorado recently decriminalized mushrooms, psychosylid mushrooms. Yeah. Psilocybin. Uh, yep. I don't know how to stand as far as telling people what they should and shouldn't do and what they can and can't do, but I don't think we should be throwing people in jail, if not prison for, for drug use. It just doesn't make sense to me. You're fighting the wrong fight. Yeah, I, I certainly don't think it's the place of government to decide what you either put in your body, what you do in your bedroom, what you personally believe in, partake in, observe. None of that is the government's business, as far as I can see. As well as your employers. Yeah, and, and as well as your employer. Yeah, even further. I mean, your rights don't just stop because you enter a, you know, you enter private property or you, uh, you know, work with your employer. That doesn't mean you don't have rights. Honestly, a big democratic platform I think that the people should be running on to is empowering democracy and dismantling voter suppression tactics. And so, you know, I remember in 2016, it was kind of, you know, people on the left were talking a little bit about doing so, dismantling voter suppression tactics, trying to get out the vote, turn out the vote. And then I remember on the right with Trump, you had people talking about illegal votes and voter ID laws and you know, all these different thinly veiled attempts to try and suppress the votes of different groups of people, primarily people of color, lower income people. It's, it happens in where they place the ballots, the ballot boxes happen, you know, the polling locations, mm-hmm. gerrymandering plays a big role into this. We need to work on a platform of empowering every American where one American equals one vote and, and nothing else. I, I think a good solution for that is automatic, you know, voter registration. You turn 18 you are automatically registered to vote. I don't know the infrastructure needed for that. I don't know what kind of security needs to go into that. But you are right. There are a lot on the on the right is talking points of illegal votes, fake votes. And a lot of the talk on the left is, you know, suppression. People getting turned away at the door. Mass amounts of peoples. That happened recently in Georgia. Massive amount of people got turned away during, during the vote. And uh, she narrowly lost. I don't see that as a coincidence at all. But yeah, 
that's the fight there as well. I think that probably number one, getting people to vote of all, over all these issues. I think the voting one is number one, because if we can't, if we're not having our voices heard as, you know, as a country, then how are we going to elect the people that are going to go in there and, and fight for us? Oh, certainly. And I think we have the means to create a automatic voter registration system. I mean, we have the selective service system. It's very similar. You know, you go to get your driver's license or you apply to for uh, federal aid. You have to, you have to be enlisted in the selective service. The same could be done with voter registration. Yeah. It could either be, you know, upon a, obtaining an ID, it could be upon, we have the technology. Um, let's do it, you know, and, and further to empower, you know, the voice of the people and selecting a government by the people, we got to overturn Citizen United. We got to get big money out of politics and we got to make it so, you know, millions and billions of dollars doesn't equal free speech in our legislative body, in our elections. We have to give that wheel back to the people instead of these, uh, instead of big money. No, absolutely. Um, for those who don't know, Citizens United is was a vote passed by the Supreme Court that basically allowed, you know, money to equal free speech for politicians to be bought out by big corporations. So that's a that's a that's a big a big thing that needs to be overturned. It, it, it's something that just needs to be done. I, I will say this: at the end of the day, despite my differences that I have with Joe Biden, even Pete Buttigieg, um, Andrew Yang, Warren. And the like, I will still be voting Democratic at the end of the day. Absolutely. And so even if Joe Biden gets the nomination, I hope he doesn't. I will still vote for him at the end of the day. Um, though in hearing myself say that, I, I'm getting like a very reminiscent of 2016. Yes. Uh, I said the same thing about Hillary when she got the nomination. Yes. I voted for Hillary, but yeah. And that's the importance of these primaries is we need to get a candidate that's going to empower people to come and vote. You need to, just like Obama did, you know, people turned out in droves to vote for Obama. And he won by pretty pretty much a landslide in both elections. But that goes to show there are more people that are going to come out and vote Democratic and are registered as Democrats than, than Republicans all over the country. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact alone that they have to engage in voter suppression tactics speaks to that. You know, why is it that Democrats are working with the platform of expanding the accessibility of the vote, you know, ending voter suppression, making it so that felons can vote, that you know, people in prison still have the right to vote? I mean, just because you're in prison doesn't mean you're not, you know, a citizen of the United States of America. And so still live here. You're, you're still living here. You're still subject to the laws and changes and the whims of our politicians. So you ought to have a say in it. The attempt to suppress the vote of prisoners has been enlarged an attempt to disenfranchise people of color. It's turnout. I mean, we have to turn out. It's not a matter of convincing people on the other side to vote for our candidates, um, convincing people not to vote for Trump, convincing really people to vote for you know candidates we support. It's just turning out and voting. That's that's the big thing. We're the envied you know democratic society of of the world for a long time, but we only have like below 60% turnout when countries, you know, in Europe are looking at more high 70s voter turnout. People need to be more politically active, politically engaged, if not just more politically aware of what's going on. You know, look beyond your your Facebook feeds of misinformation, your Twitter feeds, all that. You do some research, got- find a candidate you like and go vote for. Yeah, I mean, you bringing up Facebook, the Facebook feed, you know, brings a worrying thought to my mind. I know in a, uh, there's a lot of countries where 
Facebook has become Facebook, WhatsApp and the like have become like primary news sources, Mm -hmm. places like India specifically. A lot of people are getting their news from like WhatsApp, WhatsApp groups Mm -hmm. that are spreading fake news in support of Modi's regime. You know, they're they're working to remove rights uh, and citizenship from from Muslim immigrants there and suppressing the, the rights of Indian Muslims. I'm tuckering out, Steve. Oh, I feel you, man. Yeah, we should wrap this up. Yeah. Um, thanks, guys, for our first episode. You know, down the road, we definitely want to be covering a lot more topics. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, Steve. and I just, you know, this is also coming. We're just normal, everyday Americans. You know, we don't hold any power. We, you know, we both work our 40-hour work weeks. These are just opinions of ours as we've stayed aware as possible. I, I did have a few different organizations I wanted to plug here at the end of at the end of the podcast, just to name a few pretty quickly. Firstly, the, the Bernie Sanders campaign, they're at berniesanders.com, as well as Andrew Romanoff. He's running for the U.S. Senate seat in Colorado. Definitely recommend taking a look at his page as well. That's andrewromanoff.com. I'd also rep the local DSA, Denver DSA. They're at denverdsa.org. And a few worthy causes worth donating to. This holiday season would be the American Civil Liberties Union. Like I mentioned earlier, they're, they are on the front lines of the fight for justice in our prison system and are on the border in terms of fighting for the release of many of these people being held in those camps on the border. I would also recommend taking a look at donating to Planned Parenthood. From what I understand, contributions to both those groups are tax deductible. So uh, you can write them off in your taxes. Yeah, and those all of those plugs... I, I greatly support some of them were also plugs I, I, I would offer uh, two other challengers going on right now, both for, for Congress seats, looking at Shahid Buttar. He's challenging Nancy Pelosi in her district. And also I have massive support for Jenk Uger, founder of TYT, Justice Democrats. The list goes on of the great things that he's done. Jenk's running for the congressional seat in California's 25th district, taking Katie Hill's old spot website to find him with jake2020.com and for uh, shahid shahidforchange.us yeah i'd love to see these guys in the uh, halls of congress Ab- for sure. absolutely They're, they'll be out there fighting for us um not not taking money for from donors definitely all right well thanks you guys for listening we'll see you guys next time